0: Hello, I'm Marie Sneemann. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today we're looking at eco psychology what it is and what it can do for you and for the planet. My guest is Jeffrey Rink, clinical psychologist from Haute Bay, Cape Town. Welcome, Jeffrey.
1: Uh, thanks, Mariette. Thanks for uh, inviting me to your uh, podcast. Uh, it's an honor. Thank you.
0: And to our listeners, after our discussion, Jeffrey will give us some of his best life tips, and then it will be fun question time. Jeffrey, how did you come to practice eco psychology?
1: Mariette, it's uh, quite a story, actually. And ultimately, I ended up practicing ecopsychology psychology long before I'd even heard of the term eco-psychology. Eco-psychology perhaps predates uh, any academic input I've had and really goes back to my childhood years, my formative years, where I've just had a fascination really with uh Uh, with nature, with wildlife, with conservation, with ecology, long before it ever became a a more popular concept. Now, seriously looking at the thought of studying ecology when I matriculated, but in those days, really nobody had heard of it. And of course, there weren't any career opportunities. So I carried on with studies in uh, psychology and anthropology, and ultimately graduated as a clinical psychologist with a master's degree. Uh, Critical to and relevant to this is that when I was 18, I was somehow drawn to meditation. I'd been interested in meditation, again, somewhat precociously, something that people in those days were not really involved in, and it became an important part of my daily life and so in my clinical studies uh, I was meditating daily. We got exposed to some clinical hypnosis and I realized the connection there between meditation, hypnotherapy. Fast forward a few years and I found myself getting immersed in the world of clinical hypnosis and Studied as far as you could in the world of hypnotherapy, becoming a diplomat of the Society of Clinical Hypnosis. And also all at the same time, spending time hiking, going into the bush, uh, exploring wilderness and uh, being in a clinical psychology practice. And uh, yeah, I went on a uh, week's holiday into the bush. An exploration into a really remade part of the greater Kruger Park with a friend of mine who is a psychiatrist, a Jungian analyst. And just the two of us were in the bush together and I felt a calling, uh, literally a calling. I felt inspired to do something therapeutic with wilderness. There was no guideline. I'd never heard of anyone else doing this. And... After this trip, this was in 1997, I went about putting my calling into action and so went about planning my very first wilderness therapy retreat. And in that, I would integrate psychotherapeutic principles, I'd integrate principles of meditation, ecology, which had always fascinated me. African culture, which I'd studied, shamanism, uh, adventure, walking, all of this I would integrate into a meaningful whole and make sure that uh, it would be a deep, meaningful, intrapersonal and interpersonal and transpersonal experience. Uh, a prerequisite always is that no alcohol, no drugs were allowed. And that I wanted these experiences to be clean, pure, absolutely down-to-earth, um, authentic experiences where people stayed in basic accommodation and really could make contact in a deep, meaningful way with Mother Earth. And so the trip started, and I must say, I didn't know if what I was doing was legal or not, how the tourism authorities on the one hand would respond, and how psychology on the other hand would do it. But nevertheless, I went with my calling and took my first group on a wilderness retreat in 1998. And I must say, I haven't looked back since It's been an important part of my life, absolutely impassioned. And with my very last trip, just over a month ago, to my first trip in 1998, I still carry with me the same passion, enthusiasm, curiosity, sense of adventure, life, wonder, bewilderment, privilege, with each and every trip that I go on and uh, that my clients join me on. That's broadly speaking how it started. Over the years, um, I've become exposed to uh, eco-psychology concepts, eco-psychology literature, books in our courses in eco-psychology, master's and PhD programs. And in fact, on a tourism level, I've been adopted by South African Tourism, who very much uh, support the work I do and, uh, in fact, have supported me in joining the South African Tourism teams to several international tourism expositions, both abroad and in South Africa. So from rather hesitant uh, beginnings, really going under the radar, um, I have become uh, a fully-fledged, legit, above-board organization, uh, carrying the blessing of uh, psychology on the one hand, and uh, SA tourism, tourism authorities on the other. So it's been a huge journey, a personal growth journey, and uh, opening frontiers, really, for psychologists in South Africa, to, and internationally, actually to get involved in. So, in a way, perhaps, with that being at the forefront of eco-psychology and eco-psychology development in South Africa. That's, broadly speaking, how I got involved. And Marietta must say, all of this has been driven by interest, passion, commitment, and it's the non-material incentives for me that have been the driving force. Uh, eco-psychology certainly has been, as, as, as a calling, it has not been a uh, paid for uh, uh, a, a profession that actually pays. It's my deep involvement in it, where the reward for me really over the decades now has been in the giving and phenomenally, materially, significantly altering the lives of some people through their encounter with wilderness.
0: I must say, it sounds like a wonderfully organic process that you went through through the years.
1: Mariette uh, Mariette spot on. It has been organic. Uh, it's been, uh, there's been several catalysts involved uh, time and time again, new variables coming my way and yes connecting with the earth on the one hand and uh following the calling really has allowed it to be organic it's flowed and uh in being organic a lot of the time it's been it, it just has been an intuitive creative non-intellectual process and I must emphasize that it's been a creative process it's been intuitive it's been following a calling uh, very much organic and growing in its own way as i've grown in my own way over the decades each process actually uh, having a synergy and complementing the other
0: and then maybe we can have a look at eco psychology as you said it has developed now into It sounds to me like an academic discipline. Could you talk about that?
1: Well, yes, uh, there are universities now offering courses in eco-psychology. The emphasis at each university would be different, uh, primarily uh, overseas. Uh, There's uh, formal degrees and uh, certificate diploma courses being offered up to PhD level. And in South Africa, there are uh, semester courses as well. And I believe a couple of people doing PhDs, master's PhDs in eco-psychology. So it's a field that's growing. And I think really uh, at the start, I think in South Africa, particularly, we are wonderfully poised to take eco-psychology a lot further, given the wilderness we have literally on our doorstep.
0: Now, you've told us about your wilderness retreats, which we will get to. What I don't really know is how you use eco-psychology in your private practice.
1: Right. So, first and foremost, eco-psychology is is actually supported by my private practice. Without a private practice, there would be no eco-psychology Africa. So, eco-psychology Africa is... uh, A passion of mine, it's something I do a few times a year. Private practice really is my bread and butter. So I have a bit of an anomaly in that I spend time in my consulting rooms practicing conventional psychotherapy with a special interest in clinical hypnosis. On the other hand, at night I spend a lot of time planning, thinking, developing, conceptualizing eco-psychology. So I'm not doing eco-psychology per se in my private practice. However, the world of eco-psychology is full of symbol and metaphor, and I can bring some of those concepts uh, metaphorically into the therapeutics. Uh, Situations so I can bring wilderness into my consulting room as an example of what happens in nature. That can serve as an inspiration. Then, um, sort of like uh, dropping a pebble into the ocean of the unconscious, and uh, that certainly spreads ripples uh, through the psyche. And clients from benefit can benefit from the experiences in wilderness. Now and then, with very select clients, given that I live in Cape Town and especially in Hout Bay, out by, I'm privileged to have some very beautiful uh, fame bus close by, and I have on occasion taken a client for a, a walk on the mountain and a meditation, and that has been absolutely meaningful beyond.
0: That sounds like something very unusual. And personally, I've never really thought about the connection between meditation and clinical hypnosis, which of course makes perfect Mm. sense.
1: Yes. So when you're meditating, we all know that meditation somehow is synonymous with trance and as is hypnosis and hypnotherapy. So why meditation is beneficial is that it's a mind, body, soul, spirit practice. And when you meditate, you're altering your physiology. And when you meditate, you're altering your neurochemistry and uh, your neurological processes and your brainwaves slow down, classically into alpha brainwaves and uh, theta. It, It switches off your sympathetic nervous system, your adrenaline system, and activates the parasympathetic, the relaxation safety system. And what I realized when I started getting involved in clinical hypnosis, is that actually it's a very, very similar process involved, very similar, except with hypnotherapy, you're using that same process of altered physiology and altered brainwaves, that altered state of consciousness actually to explore the psyche at a deeper level. And that makes a huge difference to the psychotherapeutic process that you're able to access through trance and enhance functioning through going into deeper levels of the psyche to accessing the psyche and perhaps even taking that meditational state a lot deeper than would occur uh, in meditation. So I work with people often that are meditators and through utilizing clinical hypnosis, can take them into very deep trots and access unconscious material and work through it uh, and obtain then a sense of closure on material that might never really be accessed. So for me, there's a very strong link between the two and, uh, In my own personal self-care, I practice daily. But yes, uh, I understand the connection, the overlap between meditation on the one hand and uh, clinical hypnosis on the other, and utilize the synergy between the two. To take it a step further, meditation is often something you do on your own, so, it's a personal activity, although, of course, it can be done on a group level with a group energy involved, whereas with cl- clinical hypnosis, actually, it becomes an interactive uh, process where the therapist then is exploring and interacting with a client who's in deep trance and exploring intra issues and working through them not just a matter of accessing it's a matter of working through working through and working through physically through the emotional body and ultimately in lighter trance at a more in a more cognitive intellectual way so that it's a full experience
0: that's a very uh, clear way in which you've described it thank you And now we come to your eco-psychology Africa retreats that you say you started in 1998. My first question is, where do you take participants?
1: Well, that's a huge question. And for me, so much of the work I do in eco-psychology and in my personal life as well is about relationships, relationships, relationships. And so I'm not a wilderness guide, I'm a guide into the psyche. And I realized very quickly that I need to work in collaboration with people that both support and understand the nature of uh, the retreats that I'm doing. I'm not taking people on conventional safaris, I'm taking people on a healing retreat, um, I've got a love for Africa, African bush, African people. And so my priority always has been to integrate the African wilderness experience with a traditional African cultural experience. So I take people to uh, areas that are off the tourist track, Sometimes incredibly remote, but very difficult to get to. (laughs) And uh, have utilised the same areas. Generally on the, I started off on the western border of the Kruger Park area, in the greater Kruger National Park, unfenced but not, not actually in Kruger, but on the western borders, where I would be in small basic camps without any other tourists and where there would be a traditional Tsonga village, Shangan Tsonga village nearby, and later on vendor villages nearby. And I would establish a relationship, partnership with people in the village, and a close relationship always with the guides yeah with the guides that were guiding us through the bush and they eventually learned to understand what i'm looking for and as i got to know the bush better and better i would also ask them to guide me to a, a certain plant i would say let's look for azesifus mukranata or a combrita in or whatever, and ask them, and, and I would do be able to do this, because once I get to know people in my group, I can also then guide the group to specific plants, or look for specific birds or animals that would be of relevance to people in my bush in terms of their specific story, their specific traumas, their specific issues. And, Allied to that would be my connection to the traditional villages outside uh, the park we were in, and that I would establish connections with them and have very powerful, deep, meaningful connections with the traditional healers, the sangomas, the shamans living in the village. And I became all too acutely aware, actually, of the fact that people rushed past in their cars these impoverished-looking villages at the side of the road, and yet inside of them you find people with incredible depth of knowledge, highly developed uh, spiritual beings, actually, that look poor, impoverished, nondescript, and yet to have got depths of wisdom, wealths of knowledge that we actually are not aware of, and knowledge that is actually dying out. So there would always be the synergy then between my guides in in the bush, in the game reserves we were in, and the people in the villages outside. And they got to know me and would provide me and my clients with the most incredible, meaningful experiences and transportation, really, into an astounding world. And so working with the traditional healers often would be a, a major uh, consultation, sometimes lasting an hour, two hours or more with several healers working with one person. And so often my client experiencing this shamanic journey with the healers would be absolutely blown away with the in-depth accuracy. Of what they had come out with and would carry on with their suggestions once they had returned back home so to get back to your question i tended to use the same sort of areas uh, repeatedly for many years because it's only through my relationships with the local people that i could have the depth and quality contact that ultimately emerged uh, through their trusting me and this had uh, Tremendous benefits actually in allowing me deeper and deeper, more and more access actually into traditional tribal areas and into spiritual homelands. But we can talk more about that uh, later on, perhaps. And um, over the last few years, I have actually started exploring beyond Kruger, Venda, Mapungubwe. And taking groups now into Botswana and the Okavanga Delta, the Kwai River area of Botswana. And I'm using local people, local guides, as much as possible in everything I do. I also take groups now to Zambia. And uh, Tanzania has also become another focus of mine. So I'm going off the beaten track generally and exploring increasingly more remote parts of Africa, while they are still there. And in all of this, establishing meaningful connections with my guides in these areas. And the focus always is on down to earth, uh, a good connection, deep connection with my guides and exposure to African culture, African spirituality.
0: It sounds as if uh, the people you take on these retreats won't know what to expect. So it sounds to me as if it's a very rich experience with with many unexpected events and connections.
1: Uh, Mariette, absolutely. So first of all, I'm taking people out of their comfort zones. I'm not taking my clients into luxury lodges. Well, I have been contracted to do a couple of such experiences, but I'm taking people out of comfort zones, more basic, more down to earth, and uh, they're getting exposed to a world that they haven't been exposed to. And I tell you, people that have been with me, that have been into the bush in, uh, in very comfortable ways, are um, overwhelmed, actually, at the extent to which they can benefit from a more down-to-earth, more unsanitized uh, bush experience. It's what we're experiencing outside of where we're staying that's important, not what's in your accommodation that's important. And so many of the people coming with me, actually, are people that are repeating their trips. I've had a couple of people doing 10 trips, 8 trips, 7 trips, 6, etc., so I have a regular contingent of people that are returning to do trips again and again because they are quite unique. There are no offerings quite like this, where you're having a, a down-to-earth wilderness experience combined with the uh, psychological interpretations that happen in eco psychology. So it's an in-depth, enriching experience that people are getting exposed to.
0: You were saying that you sometimes ask the guy to lead the group to a certain plant, for instance, or a bird. Mm, Could mm. you give us an example of of how you would integrate that with a specific member of the group's experience?
1: Yeah, so... I haven't been able to use any textbook to uh, guide me on how to do this. So, over the years now, I've built up my own, uh, if I can say, uh, knowledge about the plants, the animals, stories about it. So, uh, let me think of an example. In South Africa, we know about Mopani trees, Mopani Worms, and we can, in the Kruger Park, drive past thousands of hectares of Mopani Forest. But actually, there's an incredible symbolism that I discovered about the Mopani. And what happened is that one of my guides was explaining how when a Mopani tree is being browsed, let's say, by an impala or a kudu, the Mopani doesn't have any thorns to protect itself. But what it does do when there's a predator, when it's being browsed, when it's being predated upon, is that it sends tannin to the leaves that are being eaten. And the leaves become bitter, and then the predator, let's say the kudu, will then walk away and leave that tree. So the tree sacrifices a, t- a few leaves. The leaves become unpalatable and the tree is saved. And the question I asked this guy, who was quite knowledgeable. I asked him, if the tree can make itself bitter, then why not just be full of tannin, bitter all of the time? And the answer was that if it's bitter all the time, if it's releasing tannin all the time, then it actually affects its growth and development, and it can't grow to its full, yeah, it can't grow properly. And that got me thinking deeper and extrapolating from that into us, into Homo sapiens, Mm. and that is it's so important to be appropriately defensive to protect yourself when appropriate. But if you're on the defensive, or if you're on the attack all of the time, then it actually stops your own personal growth and development. So to grow and develop, actually, you need to let your defenses down. You need to let your guards down. You can't be bitter all of the time. You can't attack. You can't defend all of the time because then it impinges on your own personal growth and development. And I think there's a very powerful metaphor there, whether it's for a person, whether it's for a a company, or whether it's for a country that's building its defenses up all the time, but not concentrating on other areas internally that need growth. And... If I see somebody battling with issues like that, of being defensive or of maybe being too aggressive, I'll ask the guide, is there a Mopani around that we can go to? And there's other similar trees that we can look at or other plants. So that's an example of how I would maybe use uh, nature to provide a very powerful metaphor And it goes further, because if you're on the defensive all the time, let's say a kid in school that's anxious all the time, that's angry all the time, they can't focus, they can't concentrate, the brain is so filled with, the body is so filled with adrenaline, that they actually can't focus on the lesson in front of them on the school board. It it actually impacts on your ability to integrate other relative information that can help in your growth and development, cognitively, uh, interpersonally. Uh, Yeah, a powerful lesson coming from there. And also taken a step further, it's fascinating to know that the trees also are communicating with each other. So when that mopani is being predated on, it also sends a message, a chemical signal to other trees in the area. That there's predators around and those leaves then become bitter become tannin rich before the before the kudus get to them so that area is saved from being browsed and so there's this amazing world of interconnectivity actually there's interconnectivity and interconnectedness that we're unaware of that we're actually unaware of and we're aware now of the chemical messages But in years gone past, there was a more esoteric uh, meaning attributed to it. In other words, that somehow the trees are telepathically in contact. But actually, there's a chemical signal that's being sent from tree to tree. Going deeper, Mariette, all those trees are connected by their root system. But that's another story. So you look at a tree and a tree is not standing there in isolation. It's got roots going down into the earth, and the roots are connected to trees underground. And underground, you've got this mycelium, these fungi that are connecting all the trees to each other, this vast interconnected network of life right under the ground that we're, uh, that we're walking on. So there's this incredible, vast, interconnected web of life that we're unaware of. And so to get back to your question, uh, One of the things I would look for, something would be, say, um, a Mopani tree, uh, a buffalo thorn tree, a leadwood tree. I can look at uh, golden orb spiders, cuckoo birds, elephants, lions. There's so many different stories, metaphors, symbols to utilize in the bush. But maybe on another very basic level is seeing the bush in terms of the conscious the pre-conscious and the unconscious. And what you're seeing growing in a certain area in a wilderness is not growing there arbitrarily. It's growing there because those trees are growing there. Plants, the grasses, the bushes are growing because of the soil. And the animals that you find there, and the birds and the insects are there because of the trees and the grasses, the bushes, and the soil. And the soil is determined, and the quality of the soil is determined by the rocks underneath and the whole substrate underneath, which is the unconscious. So below the soil, you've got the unconscious that we can't see, but everything underneath is determining what's on top. It's the water, it's the rocks, it's the soil. And that attracts the animals or repels the animals. That's why you find an, certain animals and birds in one area and not in another. So it's a wonderful symbol then, then for the psyche, because in our lives, in our personal lives, what we are showing, our conscious mind actually depends on what we've been through at a deeper level, or the formative influences, the rocks, the soil. The tectonic plates underneath us all determine how we behave, how we present, how we look, how we relate to other people. So there's powerful symbols everywhere, all of the time.
0: I must admit you have you have me spellbound here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and of course there's the sky above us and the stars and the heavenly bodies and you know i don't want to wax too lyrical but everything's connected we're carbon uh, we're stardust so there's this whole interconnected web of life that we're all actually a part of and to for people to realize that and to be part of that and to connect with it creates this, a deep sense of of awe it's magic and i'll throw in a i'll throw in a big word here. It, it's numinous. There's it's power. There's power in connecting with that and understanding that we're all actually part of this greater uh, interconnected web of life. And for me, that's what it's about. It's knowing that we're part of this, of this web of life, this interconnected. And we might live in a city, but boy, if we neglect what's going on in wilderness, uh, if we destroy if we contaminate, pollute, wipe out those areas. This is what climate change is all about. This is what a species extinction is all about. Uh, it all impacts on us. Who knows if destruction of uh, wild areas didn't lead to closer contact with people and animals that haven't been in contact with people before and the spread of Diseases that were ordinarily confined to certain isolated uh, mammal populations. So, our future is dependent upon how we treat the Earth, our mother. It's where we come from, and if we treat the Earth with disrespect, if we continue to abuse the Earth, the Earth one day will flex its muscles, and I indeed, it already is slightly and gently and warn us. That we need to behave with a bit more respect towards her. Otherwise, we're in trouble, deep trouble. And so, these kind of messages actually are powerful, they're overwhelming, and it hits home when we're in the bush. And there's so many other wonderful uh, examples there of interconnectedness that we're not aware of. Can I give you another example? Please do. You know, as tourists in the bush, we see elephants and marvel at their size, at their strength. What everybody knows is elephant intelligence. And we all drive past thousands and thousands of uh, termiteria, meer in Afrikaans, termiteria. And they disregarded, they not even looked at. But actually, in the African savanna, in the African bush, these are your building blocks. Your termites, on the one hand, these little creatures, these insects. And on the other hand, the elephants, they're all involved really in the reprocessing, the recycling of nutrients and sending nutrients back into the earth. So the elephant in eating has a, it's well known that the elephant's digestive processes are, uh, are very inefficient and what goes in comes out very very quickly the elephant is eating huge amounts of nutrients from trees plants bushes and bringing nutrients then into contact with animals that can't ordinarily get them so many other animals uh, scavenge through the droppings of elephants Uh, seeds are deposited into the elephant droppings where they've got immediate compost and You know, it's interesting to know that a seed that goes through an elephant's digestive system has got a much higher chance of being, of germinating than a seed that just drops from the tree because the elephant's digestion actually digests the outer layers of that seed and allows for easier growth, uh, for easier germination. Um, And it's fallen into compost that goes into the ground and it's, in a healthy medium to grow. And one elephant dropping can have thousands and thousands of seeds. And so elephants are spreading seeds everywhere. They, the nutrients from the leaves, the bushes are being dropped kilometers away from where they grew. And it's going back into the earth. Uh, animals are getting access to the seeds in the droppings, to the, Partially digested plant material in the droppings. And at the same time that the elephants are returning nutrients to the earth, you've got these little insects scurrying around in the day and at night, carrying dead and decaying plant material underground. So, what you're seeing there in a termiterium, in a mirsoop, is literally the tip of an iceberg. And underneath it is a vast complex, a huge complex. It's like the conscious again and the unconscious, and the termites are bringing dead, decaying organic material underground, which they're using to build fungus mold, which creates food for themselves and for their babies. And this, these termitaria are above, just above water tables, and they're very moist, and the temperature content in them is absolutely constant, day and night, a summer and winter, with an incredibly advanced ventilation system. It's so sophisticated. And so you're looking at an organism, really, rather than millions of insects, that has got an incredible level of control. And the insects are bringing in the plant material that decomposes and enriches the earth. And they're bringing in seeds that will germinate in this rich soil. And it's all then part of the cycle of life. And so you get rid of the insects, the termites, and you're getting rid of an important part of the ecosystem that's involved in returning organic material back to the earth, all part, really, of the cycle of life. And these are powerful messages. And elephant breaking trees is not being destructive. It's in a system where there are not fences. Those trees, those branches that are being broken down, will actually stop the flow of water in a flood, and build up islands of sand of topsoil. And in that topsoil, there'll be seed and in the branches of the tree that's been broken, the little seeds can germinate and be protected from from browsers. Those branches eventually uh, decompose and go back into the the earth. Those branches that are broken have got leaves that browsers eat. So things are not happening arbitrarily. There's a deeper meaning and purpose. Uh, There's a function behind everything that's happening in a natural system and we're not aware of it and we interfere and there's unintended consequences to everything that we do.
0: When listening to you, I get the feeling that uh, a feeling of expansion. So it really connects me to a much greater whole. And I suppose that is what your, uh, your members on the retreats experience as well.
1: Absolutely. So it's to be part, really, of a, that we're part of an interconnected whole. And it is expansive. And it's, it's about having respect. And for me, my retreats are about not just respecting each other, but about respecting life and the life around us. It's about compassion. It's about looking after. And that's what spirituality is about, really. It's about respect. It's about respect for life. And that's the overall message, actually, that I'd like people to come back with. About life, about having respect for life. It seems to me
0: that if people's issues are addressed on these retreats, then they can be sure it will also be done with respect.
1: Absolutely. So uh, You know, initially, I would only take people with me that were in therapy with me. But over the years, really, I've expanded the whole concept to take anybody that's interested in a deeper, more meaningful wilderness experience. And there's time to talk. And given the nature of the trips I do, they really cater for a small niche uh, population. I'm not catering to everybody. And people connect, actually, with deep personal issues. We become close very quickly And uh, what emerges is treated uh, with respect and we will go as deep in a holding way as possible to allow those issues to to come to the fore and be discussed uh, in a more meaningful way and to work through. And it's evocative. Stuff just does come up. Yes. Even in people that are not expecting it.
0: And how does a sense of humour feature
1: in your retreats? So... You know the sense of humor is so absolutely uh critical so what i've been what I've been saying to now has been so uh serious in a way, but on every retreat, there are numerous spontaneous funny moments where people have i can only say paroxysms of laughter and These happen spontaneously. It's often a way of defusing tension, and it's often a way of dealing with awkward things that we just have to go through. Mm. And uh, a regular on one of my trips, he's now done uh, 10 trips with me, is a top South African author, journalist, and I'm going to quote what he said about a a trip that we did uh, quite a long time ago where we were in a wonderful uh, wilderness area, absolutely in splendid isolation without any plumbing facilities. And we just, we did just have to use the long drop, which (laughs) uh, in our cities, people are not used to. And it was with always a degree of uh, uh, trepidation that one would go off to this long drop at night. And this is what he writes. So on one trip, uh, the camp long drop caused some consternation after the claim by a member of the party to have spotted a rare species, none other than the fabled, much feared, red eyed, long tongued, lesser spotted arse licker. This disavowable feature is sometimes said to be found lurking in the darker corners of politics or in the corridors of large corporations. But to have one in our own very own long drop was scary, especially for visits in the dead of night. A safari informant claimed that if you shone a torch into the dank, fetid, bumbling depths, one might even catch a reflection of smouldering, malevolent, red-eyed glinting in that gaseous bog. Otherwise, the only other hint of the presence of this long-tongued, lesser-spotted arse licker would be a spiky, fleeting, distastefully rasping sensation in the nether parts. Anyway, this is an example of some of the humour and (laughs) dealt with the discomfort, really, of having to go to the the long drop at night and wondering what was lurking beneath the surface uh, of the long drop.
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful story.
1: (laughs) At the fire at night talking, um, it's often absolutely hilarious. And what's so important is that this is happening without any alcohol. I don't allow alcohol. I keep my trips clean. No alcohol because it can be disinhibiting. It can be to inappropriate contact whether it's of an aggressive nature or a sexual nature. I want my trips to be clean and uh, uncontaminated by any other variables. I have enough to contain without the, if I can say, nefarious influence uh, alcohol can have. And it's an important lesson, actually, for people coming to the bush again, in that in South Africa particularly, we so often associate the bush with bryas and beer and drinking And actually that doesn't have to happen to have a very deep, meaningful experience of the bush. Please tell us a little
0: about your recent trip to northern Tanzania.
1: So I've started including the uh, Great Wildebeest Migration now on the trips to uh, Tanzania. And migration again is... uh, this, the last trip, actually, I had participants coming from uh, several countries or migrating, actually, to watch the migration. And for me, the whole retreat really is a far more than just the migration. It's a huge event and going through different game reserves, ultimately, to get to Serengeti and the Mara River. Given that the migration is unpredictable, it happens over a period of several months. I booked in our group into a tented camp for four nights to hopefully be assured of uh, witnessing a crossing of the Mara River or two. And indeed, every day out there with patience, uh, we did in fact witness a, a major crossing every day. And it's the most powerful moving event filled with drama chaos uh crocodiles scratching wildebeest wildebeest frenetically running up and down looking for their mothers or mothers looking for their children mothers running back across the river braving the crocodiles looking for their uh for their calves back on the other side and it's chaotic and it's frenzied and it's worked this way for thousands for hundreds of thousands of years and importantly, perhaps on, a, on another level, it tells the story on a much deeper level of uh, of all of us, how we've all been migrants, of how we've all come for greener pastures. It tells the story, too, of how in the migration, the wildebeest, zebra, Thompson, gazelle, as they're migrating, are leaving behind rich droppings, and their hooves are pushing Cutting those droppings into the earth as compost and fertilizing the soil. So as they move from one area to the next, they re-fertilizing, recomposting that area so that when the rain comes again, they're going to have food again. So it's an exercise in perpetual motion. It's an exercise in renewables. They don't eat up everything. They eat, they move, they leave behind. Uh, They take their lives into their own hands to move to a better place. But everywhere they go, they're also restoring and replenishing nature. It's a vast renewable cycle, and we need to be aware of that. They don't have a parasitic connection to the earth as we do. We take and do not give back. Actually, they have a perfectly sustainable way of life that's been this way for millennia and uh, they take and giving, there's a synergy, there's a symbiosis, and man can learn from that. We just take and take and take. we parasitic, and we're destroying and are destructive. So, these vast herds actually have been able to live this way in a far healthier way than we're able to, in symbiosis, in uh, synergy, In a mutually beneficial way and carry on living this way in contrast man is uh is taking and taking and taking and sooner or later the earth is going to run out of resources yeah so powerful message actually behind behind the migration and uh, interestingly enough everybody with us had in their immediate past or in the generation or two before been uh was a descendant actually of a migrant, who had had to leave because circumstances were bad in the areas that they lived in.
0: It seems on these retreats that that one's well, one's history and circumstances can be reflected quite miraculously in what you see around you.
1: Well, absolutely. So I would say there's a certain kind of synchrony, and things happen. Uh, there's no. You know, there's meaningful coincidences that happen in the bush time and time again, and we can be dealing with an issue and suddenly there's a sign from the bush that actually comes in synchrony with uh, a dynamic that's happening in the bush. And things aren't just happening, they're happening for a deeper reason. And we respect that, acknowledge that, and continually are in a state really of immediacy. I must emphasize that I don't plan anything. Uh, the trips are uncoordina- uh, uh, unchoreographed. Hmm. I can only do the basic logistics when I'm sitting and planning it and make sure that I've got my bases covered. But once I'm out there in wilderness, nothing's coordinated. Nature just does have a mound of its own. And events emerge, totally unexpected. And uh, I will explore them, analyze them in depth. Yeah, I just want to add something else about Tanzania. So following on the trip in Tanzania, as I said earlier on, for me, critical actually is the uh, relationship I have with my guides. And without doubt, it's because of this relationship that my guides really go the extra mile for me. And so on my latest trip to Tanzania, the owner of the company that guides me invited me on a trip to an area that he hasn't been to, and he would like to open up for further exploration. And this is Lake Tanganyika, and... uh the reserves where you find your chimpanzees and so i added on a extra two weeks to my voldebius migration trip where i went on my own with the tanzanian uh, group and on the most incredible adventure of a lifetime actually across tanzania by four by four into the most incredible country deep into Central Africa, an area I'd only but read about, imagined. And uh, throughout, I was the only, uh, if I can say, Caucasian presence in this area. And we went deep, very deep into this most incredible lake. And I did not know that Lake Tanganyika had the second largest volume of water of any lake in the world, actually. It's part of the Rift Valley. 670 kilometers long, one and a half kilometers deep. And it's on the shores of Lake Tanganyika that Jane Goodall was sent by uh, Louis Leakey, the great paleoanthropologist, to study chimpanzees in the early 1960s. And so off I went with my Tanzanians to Gombe Streams National Park, where Jane Goodall did her research and did chimpanzee trekking in the forests uh, along Lake Tanganyika and awesome absolutely beyond belief and people put trekking gorillas on their bucket list adventures to do this wild remote adventure is certainly the most off the tourist track unbelievable experience and to see chimpanzees in the wild actually having just completed a hunt and eating monkeys that they had killed, actually, I'd never expected in my life to see. Goodness. And we had to get there by boat, three and a half hour boat drive along the shores of the lake. And then, to my astonishment after there, we went to a game reserve that was even more remote and deeper into Lake Tanganyika than, than, than was imaginable by four by four on ridiculously impassable tracks and roads, crossing rivers on ferries to the Mahali Mountains National Park, a vast area, the only place where you find lions and chimpanzees still living together. And uh, we eventually got to the camp headquarters where we caught a boat late at night to get to our camp very, very late at night at Lake Mahali. Uh, sorry, at Ma- at the Mahali Mountains game reserve. And they did uh, chimpanzee trekking under really very, very difficult adventure beyond conditions. Very tough, very hard, thick bush, using machete to, get, to cut a path through the bush. And over here, you've got primates, uh, chimpanzees and others that are being studied by Japanese researchers, incidentally, that have also been there since the 1960s. And this is a magnificent, wild, remote, difficult-to-get-to-place, and the stuff that adventure dreams are made of. All on the shores of Lake Tanganyika, which is remarkable, water-clear, and actually very good snorkeling. So a lot of fish you find in tropical fish tanks actually come from Lake Tanganyika. And so I certainly hope to do and I will do a trip for the very adventurous and reasonably fit to uh, go to Lake Tanganyika, the Gombe Stream National Park and the Mahali Mountains National Park for about a 10 day retreat after the rains when they're more accessible in about uh, May or June of, uh, of next year. An adventure beyond belief and rewarding for body, psyche, soul on another level.
0: Yeah, that sounds like something you could not really describe to anyone else.
1: Uh, Correct, yeah.
0: Jeffrey, where can listeners get more information about your work?
1: Okay, so I've got a website, not really updated all that frequently, but my website is www eco psychology Africa. It's one word eco and they can become friends of eco psychology Africa on Facebook and email me at shrink at Tiscali T I S C A L I dot Cosa. I repeat shrink at Tiscali, T-I-S-C-A-L-I dot
0: Right, and I'll attach the link of your website to the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you. And just one other area I wanted to mention that is of importance on my uh, retreats, it's about consciousness and altering consciousness uh, naturally. And this is where I combine my roles as psychotherapist as clinical psychologist my clinical hypnotherapy the meditation and alter consciousness naturally in in wilderness settings and what happens when you're meditating and especially when it's in a wilderness area something profound happens so when you meditate when you're going to trance you're altering the way your body functions therapeutically you're switching off your sympathetic nervous system. Importantly, your uh, brainwaves are changing, your consciousness is altering, and when your brainwaves change, when consciousness alters, you're altering the way you think, feel, you're switching off the filter between the conscious and unconscious minds. And after walking in the bush, after being exposed to wilderness, after being exposed to other people and being relatively undefended, you're getting new insights, new understandings about yourself, about the world around you. And that is just so important. And it leads to people gaining new insights and really having epiphanies and coming out of their wilderness retreat with new ideas to follow up on, uh, new practices to bring into their daily life. So for me, These are transformative healing retreats. And I'll play on the words transformative in that they really are transformative, deep, meaningful experiences. And to add to that, given that they often are pretty basic, I compare it to having unprocessed food. And that is that uh, the more unprocessed your food is, the richer in nutrients it is. The longer it takes to digest and absorb and the longer it takes for the nutrients to enrich you to flow through you uh, to nurture you and that's what i believe my trips are about it takes time to like a raw image perhaps in a photograph they have to be edited they've got to be processed and processing takes place long long time after the trip has ended
0: Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. And now for your best life tips.
1: So, life tips. Such an important tip, I think, for listeners and for myself, actually, is about meditation. And important to have, to set aside time daily to meditate. And people ask me, why meditate? And I just say, well, because it's good for you. And to turn it into a bit of a routine, personally, I have my routine where I meditate daily, and it is a discipline. You know, it's said that the second best time to meditate is when you don't want to meditate or when you don't have time to meditate. That's the second best time to meditate. And finally, if you're too busy to meditate for 20 minutes a day, If your day is too busy for that meditation, then you should do it twice a day or at least for an hour. So that's one tip. Another tip is we're not going to live indefinitely. While we're around, as we are seeing more and more with uh, with COVID, we're vulnerable. So while you're alive, it's in your power to do good, to be good, to do good random acts of kindness arbitrarily it's good all round. everything's connected you never know what effect that random act of kindness will have on other people and another tip really is that as as i've kind of been emphasizing today all life is connected there's an interconnectedness an interrelatedness all life is sacred and what we do affect affects the whole universe, actually. So let's walk in balance with nature, with Mother Earth, and with all her people, with all her creatures. My tips. Thanks, Mariette.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey. And can I ask you a fun
1: question? Well, I hope I can answer it in a, a fun way. <laughs> uh, you've mentioned Mupani
0: worms. And I was wondering if you could be any creature with six legs. Which one would that
1: be? Mm. Ah, six legs. What insect? Well, what comes to me spontaneously with six legs would be to be one of these butterflies that hatch of hatch out of a cocoon. That's brilliantly colored, yet blends into the environment with perfect camouflage. And yet is a flower. Mm. And it's a flower that's ephemeral, that's there, and a flower that goes to beautiful flowers and drinks the most wonderful, it's proboscis, drinking up nectar from beautiful flowers, beautiful nectar, rich liquid. Giving it the energy and being able to go from flower to flower and promote life to pollinate and allow the cycle of life to start all over again.
0: Beautiful, thank you. And thank you for spending time with us and for refreshing my sense of wonder of nature and our connection to it.
1: Thank you, Mariette. Uh, thanks for inviting me and uh, a yeah, great pleasure to spend time with you and your insightful questions.
0: Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, mariettsneiman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, And the music is by Mart-Marie Sneiman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.00.